So let's pray and get started this morning. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning to hear your word, to learn from you, to be filled with your spirit, to commune with your saints, and ultimately to glorify you. Uh, we pray for all those who are, who are sick, uh, that you would be near to them, that you would comfort them, and, and that you would heal them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So again, as uh, the bulletin indicates, uh, I am not Greg Weiss, uh, but we'll be preaching this morning on our scripture reading, which is Mark 1, 30, I'm sorry, what is it, Mark 1, 29 to 39. So let's go ahead and read that. <clears throat> and immediately he, that's being Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately he told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for this is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And so we'll be talking, um, uh, what I'm going to do is break this up into three sections and, and talk about Jesus healing uh, Simon's mother-in-law, healing the many, uh, and then his mission that he says, I came, I came to preach, and he continued and so in that first section, uh, verses 29, 30, and 31, this is the same day that we left off with last week where Jesus was in the synagogue. There was a demon-oppressed man who starts shouting, and, and he ends up casting out the demons, and he says he has authority to do that, and they're, they're amazed at his teaching. And so this is the same Saturday, this is the same Sabbath day, that Jesus had just, and it says immediately, he immediately left the synagogue and immediately they go to Simon and Andrew's house and he begins to, and, and they're aware of the authority he has and Jesus has four disciples now at this point and, and sees Simon's mother-in-law laying sick and they bring him to her and, and surely he could heal them. And so um, one thing about Simon's house or Peter's house is you can actually go and visit that today. And we are fairly certain uh, with pretty, pretty, ac pretty, pretty good accuracy that that is actually his house in Capernaum. And this isn't one of those things where uh, centuries later, uh, the Catholic Church was like, uh, this is Peter's house, give us some money, and you can come and enter. There was, uh, there were certain things like that. There was, I think it was in the it was like the uh, 12th or 13th century that the church claimed to have a vial of Mary's breast milk. I don't know how they got it. I don't know why she kept it. But they had it. <laughs> uh, and so, but this doesn't seem to be one of those things. Uh, this was very early on in, in church history that, uh, that Peter's house was um, kind of consecrated. It was later, there was later a church built on it, and it was very early on, I think, like the third or fourth century, there was, there was writings claiming 
about Peter's house, and there was uh, a church built on it and around it where they, they clearly had uh, a church there. And so you can go and visit Peter's house today, and you can visit a real place where, where Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And so <clears throat> this is one of those things where Jesus, in very early on in his ministry here in Mark, and as, you, as we read through Mark, it's just a whirlwind of events. Jesus does this, and he heals this, and then he teaches, and he's doing this, and it's one after another. But this is one of those things that Jesus was later condemned for, for healing on the Sabbath. And so we have this, uh, this meta-narrative in, in the Gospels about sickness where there's something physical telling us something deeper about the spiritual. And he's, <clears throat> as we looked at last week and, and even later on in, in our readings where he's casting out uh, demons from people, there is... A, a physical ailment in our bodily sickness that tells us something deeper about our spiritual sickness. And so it, it's, it's in, in just one chapter later in Mark 2, in verse 17, uh, it says that when Jesus heard about this, he says to them, all those who are in need of a, I'm sorry, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so in, in Jesus healing the sick, he's telling us something a little bit deeper about our, our spiritual need for a physician. And there's a lot of people out sick right now, and I was sick earlier in the week, and this wasn't a, a huge old, it doesn't seem like Peter's mother-in-law was in dire need of a physician. She had a fever. She was unable to, to serve. It was usually on the Sabbath. It was the women who prepared the meals and started uh, the Sabbath meals. So they played a huge importance. And, and it doesn't seem like she was on her deathbed, but she had a fever and, and lay ill. And earlier in the week, and uh, well, it was last Sunday uh, after service, I started feeling ill. And we went home pretty uh, pretty soon after service and didn't stick around for fellowship. And, and Monday, I only got out of bed for a couple hours. And, and so I don't know about you guys when, when you feel sick, but there's something that the, I don't get sick enough to not work very often, maybe once or twice a year. And it's usually after a period of, of, of self-sufficiency and working long hours, or it's it's a stressful season. I seem to get ill around, around that. And for whatever reason, the Lord uh, visits me in my sickness just about every time when I'm just like laying in bed and I feel pretty bad. The Lord reminds me that this life is full of sorrows. This body is wasting away. And I'm 36 years old, and that's not that old, but it's not going to get better as, as I grow older. My body's, I could do some workouts, I could eat a little bit better, and I can get a little bit healthier, but generally I'm not going to get stronger, I'm not going to get more vibrant. My body isn't going to get better as time goes on, it's just going to get worse. And we're a pretty young church of mostly 20s and, and 30-year-olds, and we're starting, a lot of us are having babies and stuff, and, and so it's easy to get away from us, to think that we have a lot of time. We've got several more years. We've got uh, 30, 40 years left, and that's probably the case, Lord willing, for most of us. And it's very easy to have an attitude 
of self-sufficiency. He says, I've got this time. I've got, I've got time on my hands where uh, uh, it's not the case. We're going to, you know, Lord willing, if we live into our 70s, our 80s, we're going to be at that age, and all of us are going to say, where has the time gone? We're going to be on our deathbeds one day and realize that life is but a vapor. It was very short. We don't have a lot of time. And so what usually the Lord does for me in, in, in sickness, and I try to take it as a, as a blessing of, of just uh, try not to be as self-centered and self-focused and oh, for me, but there's a little bit of that. And, but try to take it as, and the Lord usually visits me and reminds me that like, hey, this... There is a future glory that's coming. There is a time where you're not going to be sick anymore. When we pass through the gates and, and we sit before Christ and we live quorum Deo in the face of God for eternity, sickness isn't going to be anymore. And it's a time, at least when I'm sick, that I look forward to that. And, and one of the things I think the Lord does in, in allowing sickness is it reminds us if we were just healthy our whole lives and we didn't know any sickness, that would be pretty great. But we wouldn't know and we wouldn't long for, for that time where there won't be any sickness anymore. We wouldn't see Christ and, and it wouldn't be as, as sweet to us. Sometimes those bad times make the good times even better. And it gives us something to look forward to. <clears throat> but one of those meta-narratives here in, in the Gospels is that Christ came as a healer, that we have real sickness, there's physical sickness that he heals these people of, but they eventually get, I'm guessing they got sick again, if Christ wasn't there to heal them and, and raise them, and there's even the you know, instances like Lazarus and, and Jairus' daughter, daughter who get raised from the dead, but they still had to die. It was a temporary solution. And what Christ is pointing to, and what the scriptures are pointing to here, is that he is the great physician that we need. There's a sickness that's deeper than our colds and our flus and whatever ailments we have. There's sicknesses that are worse and deeper than our paralysis. There's things that are worse, and that is our, our separation from Christ and our need for his righteousness. In John six thirty six, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying, I'm the manna from heaven, I'm the food, eat from me. There's physical food and there's spiritual food. There's physical water and there's spiritual water. And he says, there is this physical world that I created and it tells you, it's all telling a story of your deeper need for Christ. He says, for him, he says, I'm the manna from heaven. I'm the spiritual water that comes from the rock. And if you were to believe in me, you would never hunger again. If you were to believe in me, you would never thirst again. And I think in our scripture readings, he's saying, if you were to believe in me, you would never get sick again. And surely when he says you'll never hunger again, people got physically hungry. They still had to eat. It's not like when you become a Christian, I just stopped eating and I was, I was okay. There was a, a deeper need, a physical need pointed to the spiritual need of a, of a healer. 
and it, and it points to us in our sickness. We all go through sickness. We all go through hardships and, and physical ailments of various degrees. But let it be a reminder of your deep need for Christ. Let it be a reminder that if we live in, in, in Coram Deo, in the face of God, if we live with him face to face now, as we pass through the, the veil of, of death, we'll live on the other side of glory with no sickness in the glory and the light and the face of Christ for all eternity. All everybody who's homesick and watching on the video cast or watching it later, let that be a reminder that this sickness isn't going to last forever, even if it leads to death which I hope none, of, hope none of our congregants die this week due to sickness. You're welcome. And so moving on, on verse 32, and it says that that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And so why do they wait for sundown? It's the Sabbath. They're stuck in this religious system where they're not allowed to carry anything or anybody if they were to carry someone who's sick, because it would be considered work, and that would be a violation of the Sabbath. And so Jesus goes from in the, in the synagogue preaching and teaching, casting out uh, demons from a demon-oppressed man, to going to Peter's house and healing his mother-in-law, and then going from at sundown, immediately they start bringing him all who are oppressed. He's, this is a busy day for him. And so they're stuck in this religious system or they're waiting. They, they hear about his healings. They hear, hear about his power and his authority. And they might have seen him in the synagogue. And they're like, well, we can't carry sick people. So we'll just go at sundown. And, and so it says, the, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So Jesus did not have any rest on the Sabbath day at this point. And this is characteristic of Christ's ministry. He's going from town to town, preaching and teaching in the synagogues. And most of it happens on, the, on a Saturday, on the Sabbath day. Um, and there are various, and throughout the other Gospels, we'll, we see that there are, he takes people out to the uh, countryside and he, and he preaches to them throughout the middle of the week. And, and, one thing that's, I guess it's a little subtle, but it's not explicit here, is Christ never turns anybody away. He didn't say, sorry, it's the Sabbath. Thanks for waiting for sundown, but I've been working all day. I need a day of rest. Sorry, business hours are 9 to 5. Try again tomorrow. Hey, sorry, wait in line. Uh, I'm doing 10 today. Sorry for number 11. It says he never, I don't see any instances in Scripture where he ever turned anybody away. And so the closest we get to that, uh, to ever turning anybody away, you might be think, well, what about the rich young ruler? Didn't he turn the rich young ruler away? Uh, no, he didn't, actually. He, the rich young ruler came to him and, and said he was righteous, and he said, well, did you do this? And he said, yeah. And he said, well, okay, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. He says, let's go. He, he invites him in, and it's the rich young ruler who leaves. He doesn't turn him away. Maybe the closest we have is the Syrophoenician woman who's a Gentile, and, and she's begging Jesus to heal uh, his, or I'm sorry, heal her daughter who has a demon, and he says, well, let the children first, eat first, and we don't really throw the food to dogs like you. And, 
At that point, I would have been like, yeah, you're right, see ya. (laughs) But she presses in. Jesus knew this was going to happen. And she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. And uh, in Mark, it doesn't bring this out, but I think it's in Matthew, where Luca brings out that he says, oh, what great faith you have. Go, the demon's already left. And so Christ never turns away anybody who, who comes to him. And so we can't get it into our thinking. I think it's a, it's a subtle thing that comes into our thinking that we think that, well, Christ, he's not answering my prayers. He doesn't seem close. I don't tangibly sense his presence. There's, for whatever reason, that we get a subtle thinking that, that God's too busy or that this is too small for him or, or whatever. But he never does that. And, and so I don't think very often we think actively in our minds that God's too busy for me, that he doesn't want to hear this prayer, that he doesn't want me to meet with him now or something. We, I think we very uh, seldom think that actively, but uh, I think it's a subtle way of thinking, and it's pointed out in our lack of prayer, lack of praying about everything, lack of meeting with him daily, and and whatnot, and but, but, but he never turns anybody away. He always welcomes them. And so, when Christ says that, um, when he says, "Come to me," you know, all who are who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That means all, like everybody who comes to him. Now, Christ isn't obligated if you say a sinner's prayer to forgive you. But all who really do come to him, he welcomes in. Even in Luke 11, when Christ says, if you pray to my father and you pray for uh, uh, an egg, is he going to give you a scorpion? You think he's going to give you a scorpion if you ask for an egg? You think if you ask for a fish, he's going to give you a snake? No, but that, he says that because that gets in our way of thinking, that we don't seek the father, we don't seek the comfort, we don't seek the Holy Spirit, we don't seek Christ in his word. Because we subtly start thinking that he's not going to welcome us in. That he's not going to give us what we ask for. He's too busy for our prayers and, 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 and other subtle ways of thinking. And, and so even though Jesus healed these people, they eventually got sick. Right? Um, even though he raised people from the dead, they eventually eventually died. And so it is, I just want to reiterate that it is, it's very easy in a young church to get a way of thinking that says we have 30 or 40 years left. That, remember the parable of the, of the master of the house who stored up lots of grain and says, well, I'll make a bigger silo to store more grain and I'll have all these riches. And then that night he was dead. And so we don't know the time the Lord has for us, presumably, and, and we, we do make presumptions and, on the grace of the Lord that we might have 30, 40, and some of us 50 years left, but we'll be at the end saying this life was short. And so Christ came in, in to heal the physical, to point to our spiritual need. And so on uh, the last part, Looking at verse 35, it says, Jesus rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed up 
he departed and went out to a desolate place, and he prayed there. So it's very common through the Gospels that Jesus is bombarded by people. He gets out to a desolate place. He even in, uh, later takes his disciples because they've been bombarded with work, and they go out to a desolate place. But what happens? And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him. And they said to him, everybody is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And so this would be the second, maybe the third week in a row in the scripture readings that that it mentions preaching, so I am going to belabor again the importance of preaching because it's in our text. But what does Jesus say here? He came to heal, he came to raise the dead, he, came to, he cast out demons, but his mission was to preach. And there were more people looking for him, I think, it, the scriptures point to, because they were sick or they, they wanted something. They were coming to him for a physical need, they didn't come to him for the preaching. They didn't say, oh, what great teaching he had. I'm going to, let's go and hear some more. They brought their sick. And, and later on in the, in the Gospels and in Christ's life, he says, he points out that they didn't come to me to hear the gospel. They didn't come to me to be near to me. They came to me because they wanted the bread after I fed them. They wanted the healing. They wanted something physical. They didn't want me. And so Jesus' mission was to preach. He certainly came to heal, to cast out demons, and we carry on those, those ministries today. But he says the higher than that was his mission to preach, and he has to go from city to city preaching what his Father has given him. And so because Jesus had a high view of preaching, we ought to have a high view of preaching. And so it was the regular pattern for Jesus to go from synagogue to synagogue to city to city and, and preach in the town that he was. And, and, and so I have a word, uh, or I would like to speak to the preachers, those who preach, and then to the, the listeners. And so in Scripture, especially in the New Testament and the epistles, there is a heavy emphasis on, on preaching. So first to those who would, even to myself, would be here at the pulpit. I want to look at two other verses. Second uh, Timothy 4, 1 through 3. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not, not endure sound doctrine. And so in Scripture, there's, especially in, we see this in the New Testament epistles, there are imperatives and there are indicatives. And, so, and indicatives point to something that it indicates, right? Christ died for you, that's an indicative, Right? You were bought with a price. That's an indicative. Do not be slaves of men. That's an imperative. Imperatives tell you about what you ought to do or ought not to do. Indicatives tell about Christ and his, and his work. And so a look at that is in Ephesians 1. If we look at verse, start at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
in Christ and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Right? I can't do anything about that. That's either true for me or it's not. Christ either did do that for me or he didn't. There's nothing for me to obey or to do or, to do or not do. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, I had no choice in that. There's nothing for me to do. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us and adopted to himself, adopted us, I'm sorry, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us. Right, and it goes on for two chapters, by grace you were saved through faith of indicatives. And we get to Ephesians 5, starting at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not be named among you. That's something for you to do. That's an imperative. Don't do that. But the indicatives always come first. Right? Verse 4 in chapter 5. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. There you go. There's something for you to do. But there was three or four chapters of indicatives before we got to that point. And so, as preachers, as those who would preach, we should spend heavy emphasis and foundations on the imper- I'm sorry, uh, on the indicatives, not on the uh, imperatives. And so, the imperatives come after the indicatives. If we don't have Christ-centered preaching, and it's all, if we preach just the second half of every epistle, that you, what you should and what you ought not or ought to do, that would easily lead to, to legalism, to humanistic-based, I'm going to do this in my own strength because you ought to do it. But you ought to do it because in love he predestined you to be blameless sons and daughters of Christ. And so this is what Christ-centered preaching looks like, is, is, is preaching on the indicatives. And so another example, just so we get it, from 1 Peter 1, um, looking at verse maybe 3, says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Right? That is what Christ did for you. We should be preaching and have a foundation, and, and I think more time ought to be given to Christ-centered preaching like that. This is what Christ did for you. And because Christ did that for you, verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he called you, but as he called you who is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so if this goes for, for husbands, this goes for fathers, for anybody who's preaching and teaching in their home as well, heads of households, if you don't lay the foundation and if you don't constantly go back to the indicatives of Christ's work, what he did for you, what he did for your family— the power and the sovereignty that he has in his grace and in his mercy and in his work, the imperatives, what we ought to do and ought not to do, have very little power. 
Because if we don't hold fast to Christ, if we don't hold fast to him because he's holding fast to us, and if we don't have faith in his work and we're just trying really hard to do what the Bible tells us to do, we're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. Your family is not going to make it. Your kids aren't going to make it. No one's going to make it. It doesn't work. That's not Christ-centered. And so from the pulpit, we could have a... You could literally have a dry church, a dry, empty religion that has a lot of programs, that does a lot of stuff, that has a kids' ministry, that has evangelism, that has various things, and have, and you would certainly have uh, dry preaching. But what you can't have is a dry, empty religion of a church that has Christ-centered preaching. They won't mix, because that's the mode that God uses to activate faith in our lives, to draw us closer to Christ is by the preaching of the word. And every culture knows, uh, every physician spheres, but people instinctively know that preaching drives culture. Teaching drives culture. It's words that shape culture. And so we've got TED Talks, right? What is that but just, here's what I think is the best idea, here's what I think you should do, and here's my research or whatever, and let's go and do it, right? In almost every business sense, every business sphere, they, they have conferences, right? Um, I, I'm part of various real estate groups online, and there's almost always someone trying to get you to pay to hear their teaching <laughs> because they're trying to drive a culture. And that happens in, in every, every sphere. We instinctively know that teaching, that preaching, is going to drive the culture. And so whoever has the pulpit drives the culture, and it's not a light thing to handle. We shouldn't take it lightly. And so the second word to those who would preach uh, also from one of the epistles to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16 Paul commands Timothy, saying, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy. When the council of elders laid their hands on you, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so, in, in this section, to those who would, who would preach this, even, again, fathers, husbands, heads of households, whatever sphere uh, you have authority to, to preach in, it says, pay close attention to yourself first. He says, teach these things, teach, preach, command these things, read things from Scripture, but set an example. Don't be a hypocrite. If you were to teach, you ought to do. Right? And so the standard, what, when we preach, the standard should be applied to ourselves before others. It says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Your teaching matters. Your doctrine matters. 
right? If you were to just do a uh, basic search of doctrine in Scripture, which is just a, a form of teaching, uh, it's the New Testament has about 15, I think, times it mentions doctrine. And one of those is in Ephesians 4, where that every wind and wave of doctrine could toss people who are immature or toss a church back and forth. Whichever way the teaching goes, that's the way the people go. Whichever way it goes over here, they go over here. And so Paul is, by the Spirit, is commanding Timothy to keep a close watch on your teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself, on your conduct. And so you must first, uh, as, as, as people who would preach from here, you must not be a hypocrite. You must examine yourself. And so one of those examples that's clear is in Titus 1.9, talking about those who would be uh, elders of a, of a church, says, must be able to give instruction in sound or in healthy doctrine. They ha- you have to know the difference between what is healthy doctrine and what is unhealthy doctrine. There's the things that are like blinking red flags, like, oh, Jesus was just a man. Like, ah, that's, that's unhealthy. <laughs> that's way unhealthy, right? But then there's things that are subtle, that are subtly unhealthy, that are, don't seem like they're that wrong, or I don't know how, you know, maybe this teaching that doesn't, like, I don't really get it out of Scripture, or maybe it's a presumption that might lead down uh, to an unhealthy and unholy lifestyle. It might be several steps later, but elders are, are called to be able to give instruction and healthy doctrine and to be able to refute those who don't give healthy doctrine. And so 1 Timothy 4 also tells us that, uh, that there's doctrines of demons that you should watch out for. Don't get married. Don't eat this. That's what demons like to preach on, I guess. Don't get married. <laughs> don't eat everything. Look it up for yourself. It's in 1 Timothy 4. And so Paul gives tons of warning, to, especially in the, in the epistles, the pastoral epistles, Timothy, Titus, um, about teaching healthy doctrine, about, about the preaching of the word being a focus, and to watch out, that to, to qualify yourselves, don't be a hypocrite, and watch out for your teaching. And so that's for the preachers. What does that have to do with all of you? Well, now to the listeners. Uh, I just want to say uh, the scriptures give, give way to honoring the preacher, or honoring the preaching, um, to longing for it, and to not be listening passively. And so we live in a time where most of human history has not been as convenient as we have now. I could go on, I could go and listen to a pastor on YouTube. I could listen to podcasts. I could go order a book. It'll be on my door tomorrow. And I don't really need Sunday morning preaching because I can get it whenever I want. I really can. But I don't get it whenever, whenever I want. It doesn't happen as often <laughs> as, as, as we think it does, as we, we could say it does. And so... For most of human history up until this point, the culture, unless you lived in a city, you would have to travel hours and you could only hear the word once a week on one day. And you would have to travel and it would be be very inconvenient. And so in this time of convenience, it tends to 
dull our minds to think that Sunday morning preaching is just like listening to a podcast or it's just like reading a book and or listening to a YouTube sermon, which I think are all very good things and, and utilize those things, but it tends to uh, soften our longing for, for a real preacher. And so throughout Scripture, there's an emphasis on the Sabbath day, on the Lord's day for two things. And one is for rest. Don't work. Use it as a day of rest. Find some rest. Don't do your normal labor. And for, or for, for preaching and, and heralding the word. And so there's no real imperative in Scripture um, that, that the word was preached in the synagogues and it's kind of formed out of the culture of the Jews, but even from um, the time of Exodus that the, the law was read every Sabbath day and the people gathered for covenant renewal every every Sabbath day to hear the word, and that's the only time they can hear it, unless they were chunking out papyrus skulls or on tablets of stone. Uh, they didn't have a copy for themselves, so that was the only time they can hear it, and that would produce in you a longing of this is the only time. If I don't hear, if I don't hear God's word this time, this week, even for real reasons, like I'm sick and I got to stay home, it's going to be another week before I hear God's word before I get to communion with the saints and, and, and everything. And so that wasn't a mistake by God. I think in God's sovereignty, we see that even preaching, Christ-centered preaching, could sustain you for an hour or two to, for a whole week if you didn't have the word. If you didn't have the, the word, it, could, it, it's, it was designed the Sabbath day to, to gather to the Lord's day to hear the word. And in many cultures today where there's, uh, there's, um, they're not in a city and they have to travel, can still only hear preaching, hear the word once a week. And I don't think it's going to be that way forever. I think most of human history, we're going to have a lot of convenience. There's, there's going to be internet from the space coming down to your tablet in third world countries. And they can't eat, but they have their phones and internet. And for most of human history, I think there's going to be access to the word. There's going to be, uh, you could look at John Piper preaching on YouTube in, in the rainforest somewhere. And, and I think that's the way it, it is going. But for the listeners, there should be a longing for the preaching on the Lord's Day. I could hear sermons and I get to pick them out. And even in preparing for these, I like to listen to the various people and I get to pick them out. It's my choice, right? It's not your choice of, of what you get to hear on Sunday morning. And so God designed that for a reason. So there should be a longing for the preaching of God's word for the hearers. And secondly, uh, the warning or the uh, admonition to, to don't listen passively. Luke 18, I'm sorry, Luke 8, 18, our Lord tells us, take care then how you listen. I'm sorry, how you hear. For to the one who has... More will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. And so our Lord says, you know, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. All right? And he says, take care how you listen. And so in Acts 17, 11, when we see that, that 
um, Paul is preaching and he comes to Thess, or I'm sorry, that leaves Thessalonica and goes to Berea. Says that they receive the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if things were so. And so, as a listener, I wouldn't say be up here saying just trust everything that I say. There are some things that I say that are chaff and need to be thrown out. Everyone that gets up here has some chaff, but there is wheat that needs to be digested. And as the listener, you need to search the word to figure out which one's the wheat and which one's the chaff. You actually don't want to be one who just listens passively and believes everything that is handed to you. Because I guarantee you, if it happens on Sunday morning, it happens on Monday. And when your uh, conspiracy theorist coworker tells you something, you're probably going to go down that rabbit trail. And you're going to believe everything, and there's no discernment. And there's no taking it upon yourself to examine the scriptures to see if these things are true. The preaching is supposed to lead you towards Christ and towards the word. And so what you hear on Sunday mornings when you hear preaching, take it to the Lord, take it to the word, examine it, and take as much wheat as you can, and any chaff that you find, throw it out. And so that's one way to to listen passively. The second way is that there are real warnings in Scripture, especially in those pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus, to be careful of your teaching. And I don't think I'm so deceived that I think I can't have false teaching. And so it's by the grace of God if I don't. It's not my choice. And and so as the listeners, as the congregation, we're not a congregationalist that gets to decide your, your preacher and, and fire him and throw him out or, or not. And, and so we're not a congregationalist congregation, but you should pay close attention to the teaching to be, have red flags of maybe there's something that was said that that's a, that's a little off. And you I can ask the preacher about it or whoever's up here or, or whatever. But you don't want to be just receiving whatever said, blank slate, as if it's true. Take it to the word. Because doctrine is important. Heresies creep in and it drives people away. And so we, not, we ought not to think that we're so smart and righteous and good and that that, that, that can't happen to us. And you ought not to think that we're so good and righteous, I hope you don't, and so smart that that can happen to us, so you just blank slate to take whatever is said. You ought to take it to the scriptures. And even, even, as, and even so, this is uh, maybe a, a left-field example, but to kind of close on that is even when in, in one of the epistles to the Corinthians, it commands the women not to, not to talk or... Uh, uh, and if they have questions, to ask their husbands, right? Husbands, heads of households, ought to be in charge of the doctrine for their house, to where if their wife or anybody has a question, you ought to be able to answer that. It doesn't say, well, if they have a question, just wait passively and ask them after service. Sure, that's acceptable. There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, especially for husbands, for fathers, for heads of households, can you teach healthy doctrine in the home? 
if you're just listening passively and regurgitating what you hear, you're not really teaching. You've got to take the, the, uh, the word that's implanted to you, let it grow. You have to understand it. You have to search the scriptures, and then you get to feed. And so that's my ad- admonition to the listeners and, and for the preachers today. Let's close in prayer. Uh, Father, it is only by your grace and your sovereignty and you holding us, Christ, that we stay true to your word. We long for you, for, for true healing, for spiritual healing, and we long for the day that we get to see you face to face. And Lord, as we worship this morning, let us get a glimpse of heaven as we come to you, Christ, and worship at your feet. Amen.